0: My childhood was filled with singing. My father's a choral conductor and during my childhood, he directed choirs at Iowa Night High School and at the University of Evansville. My brother and I were always around high school or college kids and were frequently drawn into their rehearsals. I actually remember being put down to sleep in our sleeping bags at the back of a hall during an evening rehearsal. In middle school, I spent many evenings doing homework while sitting in the theater, watching musicals like Sweeney Todd and Evita take shape. And I can still sing you some of those songs word for word. Church was also filled with singing, especially when my dad would lead, encouraging everyone to sing. Even the people who were off key sang in a monotone or didn't read music. All voices are important, he would say. Everyone can sing. The traditional theme for the third Sunday of Advent is joy. Our scriptures reflect that theme through rejoicing or singing. And Isaiah agrees with my dad and says everybody can sing while commanding us to shout aloud and sing for joy. Because God is with us and God is good. Yes, I agree. And wow, is that hard? Because we aren't singing together. We're still wearing masks and sitting apart and not sharing love feasts or communion. We've listened to a lot of recorded music and some lovely instrumental and small group singing, but not every voice is lifted together. And that's really hard. And even though it's been almost two years, it still doesn't feel normal because it's not normal. So it's from that yes, but point that I came to today's scriptures and the theme of daring to imagine God's song. First, I'd like to look at Philippians rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is pretty clear here in what he's asking us to do. Rejoice, be joyful. And I think it's important for us to remember where Paul was when he wrote these words. He wasn't sitting in his home office writing a letter to his beloved church in Philippi. He was in a prison cell where he was being held captive by the Romans and he was writing to a church which must have been desperate for news of their founder. Now, I'm not totally sure what a prison cell in first century Rome was like, but I'm pretty sure it was a bleak place. I imagine Paul in a cold, damp, smelly cell, hungry and fearful of what came next. But his writings from prison are bubbling over with not despair, but joy, hope, and peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. When I consider the circumstances in which Paul wrote these lines, they take on another layer of significance for me. Now, rejoicing does not mean that you ignore despair. But it does mean that we as Christians have a hope beyond any awful thing that the world can throw at us. It means that we worship a God who will have the final say, who will triumph over evil. We worship Christ, who suffered and was killed in a horrific manner as a fully human person, but who is raised from the dead in an eternal triumph over the powers of empire and domination. Our joy is not from this world, and therefore the world can't take it away from us. Our joy is from God. I imagine that this wasn't always easy for Paul, sitting in his crummy little cell. I imagine him having days of despair and frustration and pain, But Paul knew, and he teaches us, that unlike what the world tells us, joy isn't dependent on our circumstances. Joy is a choice. Joy is remembering that even if it looks like the world has won, God has the ultimate answer. Paul says the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Another translation of the word that's translated here as surpasses is to have power over so the peace of God has power over our own reasoning. The peace of God comes from the work of the spirit to bring about God's will for the earth in ways that we cannot comprehend. Peace is what God wants for us. And the arc of God's world continues to bend towards peace and justice and wholeness and unity. And this year in particular, I think I needed to hear this. Each Advent, we have to re-understand why this time of preparation is necessary. What does this Advent have to teach us that we didn't learn last year or the year before? Each Advent has things for us to learn about why it's important to celebrate the arrival of a child that was born over 2000 years ago, born to a family who couldn't find a place to stay as his mother went into labor. This year for me, I think the lesson might be that joy can be found anywhere, It can be found in the Zoom calls that I'm so tired of having. It can be found in the text with friends. It can be found in a bundled up walk in the park. And joy is still there, despite political polarization and warming ice and yet another COVID variant. Sometimes we have to search for joy, like I imagine those shepherds searching, clomping through town to find a stable out back of an inn. But it's there. All we have to do is choose to look for it. And in addition to looking for and believing in the joy and peace that surpasses all understanding, we have to participate in it. We don't get to sit there all blessed out and happy. God has given us her mercy and love, which means that we are called to be a part of it, called into helping to create God's vision of the world. Now, when I think of joy and peace, I don't usually think of John the Baptist. If I'd have to describe him, I'd probably use words like hairy and odd and socially awkward. He's not really around to make friends or to mince words, but his prophetic voice as the pathway to Jesus' arrival is still important for us to hear. In this passage, he's threatening that if we don't participate in God's ways of justice, we may be cut off from the family of God. Jesus is coming, John says, to gather the wheat into his granary, but burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Ah, see, he's not here to make friends. And I don't actually totally know how to balance John's words with what I believe about Jesus, which is that Jesus comes to gather us all in, to continue to draw the circle wider and include everybody. But this Advent, I have a little bit of a better understanding of what it means to be cut off from family. Obviously not in the same way as true family divides or separations of oceans as some of you may have experienced. Last year, we celebrated Christmas with my family over Zoom. It was okay, but it was hard. And we've all made so many hard choices over the past two years. Are we together in person? or Are we doing it virtually again, masked or unmasked, food or no food? All of these conflicting decisions and difficult choices. It's made me feel cut off from friends and family and church in ways that I'd never experienced before. And frankly, we have been cut off from each other. John's words feel like he's speaking to our experiences over the past two years. Each one of us has had trauma relating to this time, and we're all dealing with that trauma in different ways. So what do we do with all of this? Repent, John says. Remember, repent means to turn, not to just be sorry and self-flagellate, but to turn back to God, to choose every day to let God's love shine on your face to walk the path that takes you nearer to God. Turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. Live it out. Give to the poor, share your resources, lift up others, be joyful, show kindness, rejoice in God's nearness even when you don't feel it. Because God is always near and God's presence is there for us to see if we are looking for it. Last weekend, I found God's presence in Goshen College's Festival of Carols and knowing that the rest of you are watching it with me. Seeing all those people coming together to make music and a full auditorium listening to them, it actually made me tearful because it's been a really long time since I saw a large group of people singing together. And it gave me hope that we too will be singing together again. Sometimes it feels like this message of joy and peace and kindness is simplistic, but we all know it's not. To choose joy in the midst of suffering, that's a special kind of heart. And that's why we get to do it together, to have a community of people who are choosing joy together, supporting each other in the ways of peace and lifting each other up in song and prayer. I'd like to leave you with a quote from Howard Zinn. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act, in a however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents, and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory or as how Paul and John might have paraphrased, be joyful, be aware, be filled with God's goodness, turn to God, rejoice, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.